2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Language, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Daniel Shea, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Bill Cope and Mary Colanzi's about their companion volumes, Making Sense and Adding Sense, published by the Cambridge University Press this year. Making Sense and Adding Sense are grammar. Now... Before the word grammar puts the wrong ideas into your head, making sense and adding sense are not grammar about language or only about language. Bill Copes and Mary Colanzi's scope is much, much wider than just language. Making sense and adding sense are grammar indeed about the written word, though this means more and other than you might think, and grammar about the visual realm and about the space we are in. And about the things we can perceive, and about the bodies of living organisms, and about the sounds reaching our ears, and lastly, making sense and adding sense are about as well the words we speak. It's quite a grammar. And just to dispel any last misunderstandings, the grammar that Bill Cope and Mary Kalanzi have made is, in their words, an attempt to create a top level ontology, a grammar that ties together in a rough and schematic way the meaning of everything. So, for more of their words, Bill Cope, Mary Kalanzis, welcome to the New Book Network. Thank you for
1: inviting us. Thank you,
3: right. Thank you for that very generous introduction.
2: (laughs) Um, To get us started, these books uh, appear to me anyway to be a culmination of sorts. Uh, Your research and your work over the years can, in retrospect, be viewed as all kind of pointing to a project of this scope and calibre. So I wonder if you could take the listeners, if both of you, Mary and Bill, could take the listeners on a brief journey from where you two and from where your ideas began and right. uh, how they developed and arrived at these two books.
3: You're quite right, uh, Daniel. Um, the making of this book began when we were students, in some sense, right back at Macquarie University. And beyond that, when we became uh scholars involved with the sorts of things that brought us to this point. But I have to say that one of the things that became clear to us, or at least matter to us, is that education is a compulsory site. Everybody has to go to some form of education, formal or even a semi-formal. And that, that was an important site to focus our work in understanding how Uh, meaning is made uh, across the disciplines and for individuals and communities. So from the very beginning, uh, we looked at the tools that were used to make meaning in uh, the education system and beyond, Uh, and of course, we started off with alphabetical literacy and traditional grammar, and from there moved on to systemic functional linguistics as a way of uh, engaging with those issues in in a a broader way. Uh, around ecologies of meaning-making that uh, can be described as genres. Um, And in the end, we came to this point when, particularly as we moved into the digital age, where meaning-making is now uh, more powerful in forms beyond the alphabetical literacy And we didn't have a grammar for that. We didn't have a meta language for understanding the complex ways in which meaning is made in formal settings like schooling and beyond across the different modes with which people now, even small children, can engage with uh, through what the digital has afforded us. So all that's come together uh, in the work here. The, the, our interest in history, the evolution of history, the evolution of how uh, people engage with each other in order to shape that history and understand the past uh, and how meaning uh, uh, is created through uh, different forms and, and different uh, functions that
1: those forms play. So just to you know, add a little bit to what, Uh, Mary was saying, you know, we started in this business, in education, in a sense, this book now, I'm calling it this book, Um, it was meant to be one book, and it got big, (laughs) and then it became two. So we think of it as a book, but in fact, it's it's a pair of books, but they're very much um, integrated, and they were both published simultaneously. So it really is one book that was broken into two. But anyhow, we began it um, in the area of literacy in schools. Now, this this work now is not specifically about educational schools, but that's where we began. And where we began was um, in subject areas and disciplines where particular sorts of formalism was were presented, um, which were separate from each other. So, in other words, you'd have a subject called language or English in the case of an Anglophone country, and what you did in that was you learnt um the um the standard forms of the language otherwise known as literacy um really focusing not on speaking but on reading and writing and what you would then pick up with is can- canonical text literary texts and so on but in fact you know we ended up or we've all ended up moving into a world and in fact look we were there before but it's even more intensely so now which we call multimodal so so much of what we do Um, is designed in an elaborate sense. The internet um, uh, um, is a good example of this, but in fact, even the page is a design space. It's a visually designed space. So we started moving towards uh, an idea that we, in 1996, uh, with a group of colleagues um, called multi-literacies, which is, it's not just literacy itself, but literacy connected with these other modes of meaning.
3: Um, We call that that the New London Group. The New
1: London Group. We met with a group of colleagues from around the world in a place called New London in New Hampshire, and the paper we produced, um, which was published in 1996 in the Harvard Ed Review, um, was called The Pedagogy of Multiliteracies. But then you know, what we found was no matter how um, hard you tried, the analyses of image and text um, and um you know the stuff of literacy and the stuff of the visual world the media world they were still separate st- still separated things and what we found was the idea of a grammar the idea um was that um we need a common language to describe meaning across these modes so the little example we give in the book is a photograph from mary's village the village she was born out in greece so we could write a paragraph about the mountains behind her house or we could show a photograph of it and we're meaning the same thing um, and we mean it, but, but we're meaning it in different, different Well, the word we use is forms rather than modes, these different forms of meaning. Um, so this this became um, the basis for us to try and think about how one has a common language. Now, of course, that common language which crosses all these different modes can be used in schools. And in fact, in previous iterations of our work, um, we talked about how it might be applied to a broader version of literacy learning. But in these books, we're really aiming to think theoretically and philosophically about the kind of language you would need uh, to describe meaning in these these broad multimodal ways.
3: And I say the motivation for bringing together that group of scholars uh, in New London way back then uh, was because we felt that despite uh, our careers and our writing and all the interventions that group had made around literacy and uh, uh, education: the gap uh, in performance of learners wasn't shrinking. Um, uh, the issues that divided us were getting larger rather than smaller, um, and that we needed to put our kind of egos um, by the side, you know, our academic egos, and try to try to uh, understand what the future demanded from us. And uh, we did come up with three things at the time that mattered, and still. You'll see those three issues through these new books. And the first one was, of course, the question of diversity. How do we understand diversity in its complexity, not just in the narrow ways in which we understand it or historically it's taken on? The issue of diversity and context matters no matter what you're doing anywhere. So that was the first point we wanted to make. The second point was about the multimodality of Uh, the resources for making meaning, and we anticipated the digital. though didn't quite uh, yet understand how far that would take us, but that was important. You know, we focus on uh, alphabetical literacy, but the other forms, the visual, the spatial, the other forms of meaning-making had always been important and were becoming more formally important. And the third point was pedagogy. Now, I say this because... It, it's, it's great having knowledge and understanding a sense of purpose and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and some uh, particular goals, but it, what you purposefully bring to those in order to transform people matters as well. So in this um, uh, very ambitious exercise of, of the grammar that we're proposing, which in a way wants to transcend uh, the uh, boundaries of the past, uh, in order to understand that we cannot harness uh, the world today unless we can move in and out of the different modes and understand the way in which, you know, uh, the five uh, uh, aspects of meaning that we describe in the book have their effect. And that's a pedagogical issue, it's an issue of diversity, and it's also an issue of multimodality. So we bring that. Work that came out of the manifesto that was published in the Harvard Ed, Ed Review at the time, with Gunter Cress and uh, Courtney Casden and uh, Jim G. and you know and the others that we brought together, uh, we've tried to take it up to another level uh, where we have the means, the pedagogical means, of uh, interpreting a moment and contributing to a moment or uh, an activity.
2: All right. Well, yeah. Um, it, it, it somehow doesn't surprise me that a work of this theoretical sophistication does have these very practical roots that you've just described. Um, because again and again, I found myself thinking how applicable this all is, how uh, the applied sciences here, there, and everywhere could so easily put much of this um, into motion. For themselves, correct, um, right. which uh, is, is is just baffling at times because it, it reaches also theoretical heights at the same time. Um, could you maybe speak to that? This 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 these two yes. ends of the project.
3: I'll, I'll say something about those theoretical heights. Part of the task of transcending the boundaries. That we're all kind of in the bounded spaces around literacy and education was to engage with the theorists and ideas that have produced the kind of knowledge that we harness for pedagogical reasons and for meaning making reasons and uh, that's the part i think you know we move backwards and forwards between the grammar that we've prescribed and the theorists and the theories. And the human beings across the planet to contributed to it uh, in order to kind of prick the solidity of what we thought about you know those heritage ideas and practices. But I'll let uh, Bill speak to that as well.
1: I mean, you the word you mentioned is um, applicability. So nothing in the book actually applies. But the applicability agenda, um, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that in a moment. It doesn't apply directly. It doesn't tell you how to teach a class in a particular subject, in the way some of our other work kind of is very, very uh, direct about applicability. This is not direct about applicability, but the applicability um, agenda behind this is, how can one build a framework which applies to teaching English or teaching language, but also applies in computer science or also applies in architecture? or also applies in industrial design. So there are a lot of um, uh, disciplines in the university which involve various forms of um, making meanings in the world, the meanings of buildings, the meanings of software code, the meanings of um, uh, text in the case of anything involving writing, for example. So one of our agendas in this, and the examples we give, by the way, um, are are across all those areas. We parse buildings. uh, We parse music. We parse a whole lot of things. Try and, and, and when we do it, we try to use this shared framework. Now, the reason why, and this is the other applicability agenda, is that all these separate practices actually do fit over each other. There's no computers, computer science applications that don't happen in a social context with text on screens or people talking or people moving about doing things. In the case of the Internet and, of, of Things and so on. In other words, these. Um, these um, applicabilities are not just broad and separate, but in the modern world they're deeply integrated.
3: So I, th- I think we use the term the philosophy of everyday life, um, and it, that is a little bit audacious uh, to think that that's what we were doing, but we viewed it like that and moving backwards and forwards between the means for understanding everyday life in its complexity with its diversity and its different purposes and interests, right? How do you understand it without, uh, as I said earlier, a rigid framework or uh, a framework that is has a very narrow orientation uh, and doesn't really capture the complexity of any particular uh, um, situation? So for us, that movement backwards and forwards between the theoretical part or those vignettes that build up uh, you have to read both books in order to kind of get the full story of uh, each one of those vignettes, underpins uh, the framework, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the transformational uh, uh, gr- grammar, uh, the transpositional grammar uh, that we uh, um, propose.
2: Right, right. Um, just for the benefit of our listeners, I'm, I'm going to uh, sort of name now two threads that I think we might be able to follow up because um, w- what we're saying is certainly understandable to them. But if we gave it a bit of a framework, I think they might be able to follow it uh, slightly yeah. better. The first thread is um, the way you've structured your project, the way you've designed the books and and so on. And, and there you've already mentioned the idea of these key theorists and these stories behind objects, uh, these these histories, if you like, going on uh, in the structure of, of the books uh, or also online, because there is online media or on my, online forms, to be more precise in your terminology, um, attached to the books. Um, but the books themselves are curiously and also refreshingly just text. Um, more text, I found, than even your average book in Almost any other <laughs> discipline. <laughs> um, I, I, I enjoyed that and I got to your point um, that um, we're going to cleanly approach this, this, this project. Um, so j- maybe just keep that in the back of your mind, um, the structure of the project. And, and the second thread that might be helpful is um, we're mentioning forms and functions, but um, the listeners don't necessarily have in mind which ones we mean. So I'll, right. I'll just simply name them um, the forms being. Um, In the order that you choose to put them, um, the text, the image, space, object, body, sound, speech. Those would be the forms that we're talking about. And then the functions uh, that uh, Mary uh, Kalanzis and Bill Cope uh, talk about in their books are reference, agency, structure, context, and interest. So if you can hold those two threads in your mind, perhaps you could follow up on, on both of them a bit for us.
1: uh, Okay, so um, I'll I'll just um, uh, firstly talk about the question that you mentioned about text. It was a practical thing. I mean, we wanted to use um, many hundreds of images. In fact, we end up using about 500 images. Um, But also we wanted to have sound and we wanted to have video and you can't do that even effectively even in an ebook. Um so one thing was just a practical thing and we have the website which is minipatents.net where we have not just the supporting media for the text but also when we'd finished writing the books we thought okay let's do a video version of this so we actually have a series of 30 short videos which goes through the whole thing and they're all kind of mooc length actually <laughs> you know the classic mooc format now is 6 to 9 minutes these are are short videos which tell the story in video format but the, the reason um, going back to the books themselves you know writing has long been a habit of social science and some of the most influential things in the world in terms of social theory social knowledge are things that have been written so and writing is a nice thing and we like writing and and writing does things which other media don't Um, as well so the books are essentially written but we also wrote them you mentioned this it's a string of um, of small chunks so although it's two books actually they end up being exactly 300 chunks at the end we went and counted them and there you go there's 300 chunks a lot of which are small stories so we want to talk about Wittgenstein in a slightly vexed kind of way so we tell the story of his life and some of the things that he did um, so, you know, what we do is we take various theorists and we we tell biographies, we take examples of places and we tell stories of walking down the street. So we have tried to produce it as 300 uh, chunks, all of which have a kind of a little narrative quality of them their own. None of them are terribly long. And in fact, one interesting project we have at the moment is we are posting these one small chunk at a time on the web, um, thinking that the chunks sort of also designed partly to stand on their own they point they point to the bigger project um, all the time but nevertheless they they kind of stand on their own so that explains a little bit about the medium
3: can i will say something about that before we get to those two points um, so we came we published with cambridge and uh cambridge like other publishers are struggling to Know how to engage with the world of the future. And they were kind of very, uh, they've been very good with us, terrific with us in in putting these two volumes together. Remember they exceeded the contract (laughs) uh, but they saw value in them. But they understood and that we'd be building a parallel uh, way of uh, introducing these ideas in the world, which we take responsibility for, which is the, the online presence of the ideas, the, the stories, the vignettes, um, and, and they were very supportive of that. Uh, but uh, and we built it into the text, so when you read the text, it says, you, you know, it tells you where to go if you want to actually see. Or hear or view uh, what we're referring to. So that's the first point I want to make about publishing and how you get into the world at the moment. We're kind of in a transitional space, moving across uh, traditional ways of uh, publishing and getting ideas out, and uh, other ways which rely more on your agency. As uh, an intellectual or, uh, or a thinker or, or a worker, so that's the first thing. The second thing I want to say is, uh, with those 300 vignettes or stories, we didn't want to do like the stories of you know what's classically called dead white men. <laughs> you know, uh, meaning making has been made in the world by people of all sorts of backgrounds, and we wanted to. Dr- draw on that, we wanted to draw on uh, the the men and women we wanted to draw people of of different backgrounds to uh, actually give voice uh, to uh, uh, those who might not normally find voice in in, in a text like this and also reinterpret those dead white men right, who had such an influence on everything that we understand. So the vignettes are, are kind of a uh, stand on their own, as well as um, underpinning uh, the the grammar uh, and the aspects of the grammar uh, that we think matter in making meaning.
1: So one aspect of that is we didn't want it to be a Western narrative. So we've there's you know um, just incredibly fascinating material about um, uh, Arabic. Arabic linguistics, which we included, uh, included a lot of Indigenous material. We've done work in Australia where we know um, how Indigenous communities, First Peoples, we call them, um, uh, uh, operate in terms of the ways in which they make meaning and culture in the world. Um, uh, As Mary said, we made a point of resurrecting people who've been partly forgotten. I mean, one of the great, great German philosophers of the 20th century is a woman by the name of edith stein who's largely forgotten who wrote about the nature of empathy um we so what we've done you know the, the ada lovelace in the and the computer is largely dismissed um, by most people by the way except alan Turing, who didn't dismiss her so um uh you know what we tried to do is build something which is representative of meanings across the world and not the uh, the 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 european tradition narrowly speaking um of the you know, proverbial dead white men so yeah that, we've it it's hard
3: to know when to stop really yeah we still have yeah. so many
1: yeah um, so you yeah, who know who, how many people know that in fact you know the foundations um we argue the foundations of grammatical thinking and but that also includes various forms of algorithmic thinking is to be found in Panini's grammar from several thousand years ago, an Indian, the first grammar that was created, the Indian, an Indian grammar. So, you know, we've, we've tried to go and do something which covers the world as well. And of course, for that, it means it just, it skirts around things and touches on things. And they're often, the little narratives are allusions rather than systematic academic arguments, because none of them is more than several pages long. But in terms of the two axes that you mentioned, I might just speak about them and then American sort of elaborate them on in her way as well. Um, If you've you've got, you know, I know people are listening to this at the moment, but if it happened to the website, you've got to create a kind of a mental image. And the mental image is of um, a a kind of a table or a page or a grid. Um, And across the horizontal axis, we have a number of different forms of meaning, right? So um, we have, uh, as you mentioned before, um, in, in your introduction, Daniel, we have text, image, space, object, body, sound and speech. Now, one of the radical things we want to say, and we put text at the beginning and speech at the end, is that although we think of literacy as writing down speech, these things are radically, radically, radically different, right? Um, And that, in fact, what we do with text, and by the way, our definition of text is a narrow one. It's simply writing, and in the digital world, we're going to be even narrower in our definition of text. It's that which can be written in Unicode. So what Unicode is remarkably is a universal scripting system which has evolved over the last 20 years, which is the basis of the internet, which doesn't just include the 60-odd characters that are used in English, if you take punctuation and various things, um, and all the characters in Chinese. It actually includes now emojis and every um, graphemic thing that can be put on a typographic line, to be quite frank. That's roughly what it is. And there's 130-odd thousand items in Unicode. That's text, right? Um, um, Now, what speech is is the stuff that that we do orally. And, of course, there are these complicated relations between text and speech. But in fact, text is essentially an image exercise, laying stuff out on a page and involves certain forms of methodical construction which are essentially visual forms of of making writing full stop we, we put a full stop at the end of a sentence which doesn't look Mary and I now if you went back and transcribed what you're hearing it's pretty bad writing the transcription because it doesn't it's a pile of clauses there's redundancy uh, we're correcting ourselves all the time we've got something his hands and I'm moving my hands that's right which you can't see but I can't talk without moving my hands so what we argue is that speech has the the unrecoverable linearity of sound right Um, and it's very close to body here's me moving my hands and you can't see it whereas what we do with um image it's it's the spatial arrangement with text i'm sorry what we do with text is the spatial arrangement on a page where i go back and i delete a repeated word i put a heading in i put a paragraph which is a spatial function Um, um so the grammar of text is radically different now of course what there is is there's a transposition right but there's also a transposition between me using the word mountain there's a mountain and me showing you a photograph of a mountain right so um what we argue is the transpositions between text and speech are greater um are as great if not greater than any of the others so what we've done is across this top axis text image space object body sound speech we've put things together in what we call supermarket order right and supermarket order is Um, you're going to intuitively find the eggs somewhere near the milk, right? Um, Even though eggs and milk are different events in the world, they're different types of things. But, you know, roughly that's where they go. So we've said, look, we've put these things in this order because that's roughly where we might put them together and in order to say text and speech are a long way apart.
3: Can I say something about that before we move to the next part of the functions? Um, uh, They have... You know uh, different affordances, each one of these uh, meaning forms, and I just want to give some, just a, a crude example, really, but you know a strong example. Uh, Gunter um used to say uh, and uh, and has written extensively about the degree to which image uh, in the digital age, particularly, is uh, becoming more powerful. Uh, uh, in a very significant kind of ways. And I, I want to give two examples to demonstrate the role of this. Uh, one of them is from uh, the prison called Abu Ghraib, and uh, the Red Cross had written a tome about what was happening in that prison, um, uh, and it was on the web. Uh, it was written in beautiful alphabetical English Uh, Anyone could had access to it, uh, and it was available for a very long time. Then somebody went into the prison with a phone and took an image of a man on a stool uh, with a hood over them uh, and electrical wires coming out. That one image, right? That one image captured the imagination and made more powerful meaning than the perfect tone that the Red Cross had written in terms of influencing governments and and others uh, to recognise what was happening there. And today we're seeing, uh, here in the United States anyway, that those cameras that, that people are using to photograph each other, to photograph events that everybody knows about, you know, um, in relation to uh, police and and um, uh, people who are affected by uh, actions uh, that are, you know... Um, Indecent, <laughs> you know, that's the best word I, uh, I can find. But those, uh, th- ca- that, those images captured on the video, those photographs that I can have more power in influencing, again, uh, governments, uh, policymakers, uh, shifting people, producing riots, even though there's nothing different about what's happening now than ha- has happened in the past. So the impact of the image is really, really powerful. And it, of course, it uh, moves and moves backwards and forwards between text and space and object and body and sound and speech. Of course, those transpositions happen all the, all the time. But we want to say that in this moment, it, it, the affordances of each one of these forms uh, uh, has become uh, more generally impactful and that we need to understand uh, exactly how that happens as educators and also as citizens and workers.
1: Okay, so if we've you, just done. Oh, sorry, you were going to
3: jump I, I, in with a I, quick. No, I, well, I
2: just wanted one cl- uh, clarification, just just for the listeners again, because you've mentioned the word uh, transposition a number of times, and uh, Mary, you very uh, clearly make the case with Abu Ghraib that uh, we're dealing with the power of images, but the interesting point in your grammar, I find, is exactly the transposition, that the image will then bring us back to the text that had been written. Right. New texts yes. will be written after the image. The oh, yes. spaces where okay. these things occurred will be investigated, and it just spreads from there. Could you, could you speak to transposition, which, which the way you're using it is not necessarily the way everyone would understand it, I think.
1: Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. So, um, th- the idea is that it's possible to mean the same thing in different ways, but when you mean it in one way and then another, it's never quite the same, right? So the words, the picture of the mountains where Mary's village is um, and me talking about it are not quite the same. They're the same thing that we're referring to, but they're never quite the same. Mary's Abu Ghraib example, you know, the, the, the picture is powerful because it says something in a visceral kind of way about bodies and space and what was happening there um, in a way the text was detached in a way what they kind of do is you're absolutely right they complement each other so the point about multimobility is the fact that we're moving backwards and forwards transposition for us is a movement process we're moving backwards and forwards between these different forms of meaning and the meaning is in the movement right which it's possible for that image to refer to the report and after the event the report when you read the report you can't help but see the image in your mind's eye so in other words this is about um th- this constant process of movement
3: and exactly with the body if you just take the body again i'll just talk about the american context because that's where we are you know the there's the visual body that we we're seeing regularly in all its forms, you know, uh, and all its colours and and all its effects. And uh, we're seeing it uh, both uh, as images, we're seeing it as videos, and we're seeing essays and texts, we're seeing the sounds that come from bodies, and it it moves. The only way you understand the impact of any particular situation is the way in which uh, the meaning shifts from the sound that's involved with the body, from the space in which the body is in, the way the image is affected, and the text that that is generated. And these shifts go backwards and forwards.
1: Um, so you know, in the past, you know, like um, the, the way to get meanings across time and space was with the printed word or the written word, text. But now with video and the internet, um, you know, all, all of these meanings, object-based, uh, space, body, sound, speech, and text as well, because there are going to be subtitles. These are multimodal events or it's written about somewhere else. Um, these things achieve what historically text always achieved, which is basically movement of meanings across time and space. So that's why this is unusually important in this particular moment, the digital moment.
3: I suppose what we ask of educators is how they integrate this reality into whatever they're uh, teaching, (laughs) whether it's science or history or English or whatever it is, you know, uh, you know, are they are they stuck in the just the text? Are they stuck just in speech? Uh, You know, in in a classroom, uh, in a regular classroom, I think the data shows that speech is mostly from the teacher. Uh, that uh, a student, if they get 15 minutes of expression in speech with the teacher, that's a very rare thing, right? Uh, what, what does that make of meaning-making in that context? What does it do about power and agency if you wanted to understand a classroom, right? Just between text and speech, right? Um, uh, there are very profound uh, insights into what happens uh, in uh, the transpositions that occur there and don't occur there.
1: So let's go back to our mental image we've asked people to conjure up. So that's a list of things which appear as column heads on a table across the top of the page, one beside the other in, as we say, supermarket order, just roughly put beside each other because... They all happen simultaneously and they're often connected, but roughly this is how they connect, text, image, space, object, body, sound, speech. And they all have separate affordances and they all are transpositional. Right. Now we're going to go down the page on the, uh, the vertical axis because what we want to say is, okay, at a macro level, at the top level, um, um, what do all these things do which is the same? How can we build a grammar of meaning which is applicable across all of these forms of meaning? And we say there are five things. Reference, which is what's it about? You know, it's about the weather or it's about a tree or it's about a mathematical formula or something or other. Agency, who's acting? And the who doesn't have to be a human being. It might be any sentient creature. It might be nature itself. You know, there's agency in a volcano. (laughs) There's agency, you know, things move. Um, um, um. So, you know, what kinds of action are occurring in that space and who is behind that action? The third thing is structure, which is things have these inherent forms. They hang together in particular ways. Um, how, how are they connected? So, you know, the structure of a sentence is it begins with this word and it ends with a with a period or a full stop. The structure of a building is it's got a you know a front door and a back door and a roof and various things. I mean, all the obvious things, but structure is a general way to talk about beginnings and endings of, of media objects. Um, context is, oh, so, by the way, these three things we do in making sense. These are the core things about making sense of things in the world. Then adding sense is kind of, if you like, extras. There's a, a round meaning which we call context. So things make, make sense, not just because of what they are in themselves, but the context in which they sit, what's around them. Um, and in linguistics, this is traditionally an area which is called pragmatics. Then finally, we have an idea called uh, interest, which is what's underneath it, what's behind it. So, you know, context is what's around it. Interest is what's behind it, which is, okay, what's the agenda of an advertising? What's the agenda of an advertiser? What's the agenda of a politician? What's the agenda of an architect when they build a school? What's the agenda of a, um, a, a photographer when they take a certain picture? So what we've done is we've said, okay, all of these forms of meaning, we can ask these five fundamental questions and there will always be an answer to every one of those questions, right? So this, if you like, is, um, you know, kind of a, we, we call it a, a, a meta-ontology, if you like, because what it does, it, destri- it describes meanings in the world. And when I say in the world, it's not meanings that we just... Um, you know, wantonly ascribed to the world, it's meanings in the world. It's dogs and trees and math and, and, uh, and, and bridges and hatred and whatever. These are not just things, words that we give and images that we create. They're meanings in the world, which we're in the business of. And this is the other key concept we have. We're in the business of representing, which is we make sense to ourselves, communicating which is we tell other people by these means, and interpreting, which is we receive a meaning and make our own peculiar sense of it. Really? So if you like, that's our kind of – that's the whole grammar, by the way. <laughs> you, you, are, by the way, there's 700 pages and uh, you don't need to read it now. <laughs> but we,
3: that we that is a very – very, very-
2: that is a very on-spot summary, yes. <laughs> I
3: was going to say that, of course, it comes out of uh, the Hallidayan tradition and, and uh, systemic functional linguistics. Uh, and
1: uh, So um, in case people don't know the Hallidayan tradition, t- you, uh, Mary, tell them about Michael Halliday.
3: Well, tell them about Michael. Well, Michael Halliday, uh, I think everybody knows him well. The people who are interested in literacy know Michael Halliday. He was uh a linguist and, and an Australian and uh, you, I, I...
1: Well, no, English originally.
3: English originally, yeah. but I knew him as an Australian. He taught at Sydney University. I remember sitting in his classroom where he had this huge brown uh, wall. It was a paper that he'd stuck up on the wall where he traced all the languages and their uh, similarities and, you know, how they came influenced uh, each other and, um, he was, uh, I remember him saying he could have gone towards history or gone towards linguistics, but uh, he moved towards linguistics and with his wife, Rakhaya Hassan, who was a semiotician, who was my teacher, I, uh, I did semiotics with her at, at Macquarie University. Uh, they were very influential, particularly in the Australian context in uh, in. Uh, Uh, systemic functional linguistics and influencing uh, what we
1: call a genre approach to literacy in the Australian context. But let me say also, it's a completely different paradigm to say the Chomsky paradigm. So what we we do in the book is we try to work our way through the Chomsky paradigm to talk about what the differences are uh, between what we're, so we uh, we engage with Chomsky and we tell stories about Chomsky actually, um, who's an eminently um interesting person to tell stories about so in other words um it's a tradition which is if you like i mean what chomsky says to put it bluntly is that we've got this stuff hard written into our brains which is called the structure of grammar um and it has this logical form and here's the logical form of it whereas what Halliday says is that our social actions our ordinary everyday living in fact we begin both books with this lovely quote of his which says, look, grammar is just a description of everyday life, right? And that's where we've kicked off um, uh, what we've we've done in this project.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And that's one thing um, that I find uh, reading the two books uh, came out very clearly. I mean, if you're a huge fan of Chomsky, he doesn't come off so well, but he's he's definitely treated very fairly. And uh, generally, which is the point I want to make, when you look back over all these different traditions that you've brought in, uh, Wittgenstein or Locke or uh, m- materialists and 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 idealists and so on, you notice how much um, in intellectual history, how much tension there had always been. there was always yes. reaction and action and reaction and, re- and, and action again, and um, that's wonderfully somehow dispelled in your uh, handling of these things. Uh, for instance, when you get uh, to the point where you say in a few different parts of uh, the different books, um, the two different books, um, we want to have our uh, Foucault, Derrida, and we want to have our Husserl and Stein, we want to have our Descartes, and we want to have our Locke. Or when you depict uh, the First Peoples, their unified sense of subject and object, um e- Let's put it this way, as people say in, in the writing of novels, you've earned it. <laughs> um, it's a it's a line that comes across in a way uh, that is uh, believable and backed up uh, story by story and uh, theoretical move by theoretical move.
1: Yeah, actually, one thing that our very good friend, um, Gunnar Kress, used to always say, um, one of the hazards of academic life is... Uh, to spend your life doing critique. So what you are is you're a detached observer from the world and you're always critical of the world because it's never quite meeting your expectations. And what Gunther said, which always stuck with us and resonated with us, which is don't do critique, do design. So our view is we come to all these people and we've come, tried to come to all the main people in the game including Chomsky and philosophers of language and anybody, anybody and anybody who's dealt, you know, Jürgen Habermas, there's a long list of people that we try to um foucault michelle foucault we try to deal with them all and engage with them all but in a way one of the things we say is that we we do them as all our kind of our friends and our family and it's like family members that you you love but disagree with in some respects but you better stick with you know with with loving them while you keep talking about them so you know these are all people who are to be admired and liked And we don't bring them in in order to take them down. We bring them down to draw a distinction and say, look, this is profound, this is interesting, but perhaps we should think this. And um, so, you know, we've got this kind of mode of operation where uh, we don't do critique. So, you know, we've got deep ambivalence about Chomsky, but my goodness, what he's done with his life is incredibly interesting. We've got a long chapter Um, about Chomsky's connections with Yugoslavia, which you wouldn't, you know, the the former Yugoslavia, which you wouldn't normally find interesting, but his relationship to it and the stand that he took is complicated and interesting, but also it relates to certain forms of language. Because there were these language philosophers at the University of Belgrade who connected with analytical philosophy, which is nothing like what Chomsky does, um, who he unequivocally supported. So what we tried to do is, is tell these stories always in a way that's sympathetic, even if there are some people who we, um, you know, are are very, very ambivalent about.
3: But in terms of method, what we try to do is kind of track down the details of their lives to kind of humanise them, not just to draw upon what is public and in their published work and, and in the critiques and arguments about them, but who they were as people because to be true to our own grammar, you know, what motivated them? What in what, what was their context? What was the interest? Uh, what's the backstory? Right. Um, and uh, that's an important uh, part of uh, uh, constructing these vignettes.
1: So in a way, we're doing exactly what our grammar prescribes with, with, yes. with these theorists. We, as Mary said, we look at their context, which is our fourth of our you know list of many functions, and we're we trying to. Uh, parse their interest, if you like.
3: And, and providing some surprising insights into them which might uh, help you rethink uh, what is public
1: about their views. And I'm sure you're going to discover we had a lot of fun doing this, fascinating stuff, just, you know, like um, life is a, an endless set of gossip networks, so just tracking down the gossip networks and, you know, how what this person was saying about that, what they were really doing and, and why they were doing it and stuff. So... Um, it was a lot of fun
3: the hardest part of course was the elements of the grammar you know because uh, we struggled a lot with that uh, what do you put in it what don't you put in it uh what is uh how, how, you know it's huge as you know the whole the whole uh construction of it the you know the uh details that go with the uh five functions across those meanings and how do we represent every meaning that that, that was harder uh to do and We're hoping that it's useful. It's wonderful to hear you say that uh, you see the applied uh, dimension of it, Um, and we're hoping that people will uh, take it up, uh, engage with it, produce knowledge for us as well uh, in the way that they deploy it, uh, add to the um, to the framework or 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 redesign it. We we see it. uh, We see all our work as uh, uh, living, you know, and because. Uh, of the digital environment, uh, we can engage now, like we are with you. You know, the the work isn't finished in the published books by Cambridge. Uh, the work continues through the posts Bill makes and he posts things uh, uh, from the book and he gets a lot of people responding uh, with different views. So we're having a dialogue with people uh, as we uh, come to terms with So
1: we've just issues. begun this, web, this um, uh, web posting business where we post each little chunk as a blog, uh, like a blog post, uh, essentially. Um, and the interesting thing is we've only just really begun it. Not, well, the books are only just out, but we've only we've begun it and we get a few hundred views, actually. So, you know, our, uh, you know that's an interesting <laughs> experiment in new media as well. well yes, we're that very, sounds good.
3: We are very curious to know how the traditional, uh, the folks in traditional grammar uh, engage...
1: Traditional linguistics.
3: Traditional linguistics, yes, uh, engage with with the grammar. Um, We were hopeful from the time that we uh, came together in New London and talked about multiliteracies, we were hoping that many more people, scholars, would take up the task of uh, the meta-language for multimodality because... Without a middle language, you know, you're still, uh, the primary meta language is around alphabetical literacy or, you know, symbolic uh, 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 language. And the, the, the other modes would not have the same power if you weren't able to have a framework to analyse them in, in a comparable kind of way. So in the end, we thought, well, we'll have to do it, you know, and that's why uh, we did this work. Uh, well, you've done a to...
2: very good job of it. I can say <laughs> just a brief word on um, how linguists linguist might uh, take it up. Uh, for, for me, um, when I looked at the forms and especially uh, the, the separation of text um, from speech and the idea of this, as you repeat often in the book, this imminent and uh, imminent uh, possibility of change or not even possibility wanting um, that the meaning wants to change. Um, so much became clear for me. I, I'm I'm coming from, say, a Cambridge uh, uh, grammar of English language approach uh, to language, and if you, if you get into the nuts and bolts of that kind of grammar, you see that much energy is expensed to argue that near is a preposition, near is also an (laughs) adjective. Um, We classify these as nouns, but we run into problems on the outside. We'll have to call it a prototype approach and so on and so forth. And when you view it though, back from these forms and these functions, you start to notice that you've taken up the correct position to notice that you can learn quite a lot from that detailed approach of arguing on yeah. a structural level but you can dispel many of the problems you run into by stepping back to exactly where you two are standing and uh, right. so just just Mary to, to sort of give how I anyway from my linguistic background would take it that's it, it's been positive it's 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 been helpful
3: right. right and the other side of it which has never gone away from us is you know in in the world where we're co- we're getting closer but further apart. It's a conundrum, right? We don't have the means for dealing with that closer and further apart uh, except that we're kind of going into our, uh, you know, and our bounded spaces clinging on to things of, of the past rather than things that might take us forward. And and if, if meaning-making is, is like you say, you know, word order or, you know, uh, um, the syntax, or you know, those kinds of things, and that's not going to get you to e- engaging purposefully with the complex issues that we're engaging with, whether it's in science or history or just communicating in your family, right? So, we that that has uh, always been important for us, what we call cohesive sociality. I know it's a kind of maybe, a, you know, an aspiration you know, that has had many different ways of discussing, but cohesive sociology needs to, particularly context and interest, you really need, in order to interpret any event in a productive way, uh, understand context and interest. So we make context and interest equal to reference, agency, and structure in, in the framework that we have presented.
1: But let me get back to a a, a very, you know, the narrow linguistic example that you just made about near being an adjective or an adverb. The answer is all of these things are movable feasts. And the real thing is not that it's between a noun and a verb, but the fact that verbs are always begging to be made into nouns. It's called science. And, 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 and nouns are always beginning to become verbs. So they're always in a process of movement. And this is another kind of micro-element of transposition. So within each, within each one of these major functions, we don't have these things which are straightforwardly, or, you know, universally, you know, adverbs, adverbs, adjectives, nouns, verbs. We have processes of movability. Um, and, in fact, the movability is how you sound like a scientist, you know, which is a... Um, um, or um, going the other way, the movability when you do a, a TED talk in speech and you, it's really a boring talk but you want to sound like your affable, friendly, ordinary, down-to-worth person, you play another game pushing the other way. So it's about trying to push things all the time uh, in various directions. So, um, you know, this is what we mean by the transposability, uh, the transposability thing, not structures which are... Uh, uh, a sets of rules about how things happen, but structures where um, every every element in the structure is begging to move.
2: Mm. Yes, this begging, this wanting, um, a, a very good way of, of putting it because it, it makes it clear what's meant. Uh, it's not about, um, how shall I put it? It's not about something that uh, you, you're arguing. It's already in there that's yeah. you you've, yeah. you've made the point for instance uh, earlier in our discussion that uh, it, it's it's so relevant now these different forms are becoming so relevant now um very true totally agree and yet they were always relevant yes and i think that's how meaning actually works in the world or <laughs> yeah, you've gotten close. very very that's close. That's
3: <laughs> close yeah 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 yes yes i'm, I'm glad you see you said that <laughs>
2: Um, if we could, and if you uh, wanted, I would like to perhaps touch on each of the functions, because the functions are what then actually uh, structure the two books. Um, you make the point that we could have also followed the forms, um, but decided uh, to move uh, one function after another reference was the beginning and you went on then all the way up to interest. Um it might be uh, interesting to do it any way you liked, but it might be interesting to pick up one of those many stories in each uh, that you've, you've, men- you've talked so much about. So, for instance, if we began at reference, if there was one brief short story, vignette you could give us that uh, tells us something about some of the concepts there, um, I'll just name a few of the random ones, entity versus action or instance versus concept. Okay, so um, let, let's
1: let's choose something. Is there one that you would like to hear about particularly? Um, I'm wide open,
2: whatever you like. There.
1: <laughs> um, so, all right, we're gonna we're gonna have a quick look here um, about what might be a good example. So, one of the things you've got. Oh, I tell you, a, a really important one um, is an instance versus a concept. Right. So, this is where we want to make, and I'm gonna give the give it now a grammatical sense. An instance of something is a proper noun. Bill and Mary, uh, you know, we're we're proper nouns in the world. Um, um, And a concept is um, a person. We're both people. And, by the way, an instance deserves a lot of the time uh, a definite article and a concept often... um, uh, requires a, um, an indefinite article. So there we go in language. So how does that happen in um, how does that happen in in image? Um, well, one of the things we we go and look at is this fascinating history of the development of iconography um, by um, uh, uh, Otto Neurath and um, and his partner Marie Rittermeister, who established in Vienna in the immediate wake of the First World War, um, the, uh, a museum, a museum of pictorial statistics. Can you believe anything um, more sound, that sounds more boring? But what they did is they built this idea of representing quantities um, via a series of icons. So, you know, if you want to say 500 people do this, Uh, But 800 people do that. You have five little people standing there and then you have eight little people, eight little people standing beneath that and they each represent 100. So, in fact, this is the beginning of the whole world of modern visual representation of concepts, right? So, again, um, if you wanted to think about Mary and me as instances in, in an image, you'd take a photograph of us because it's irreducibly us. And, in fact, we've got face recognition stuff now where um, it's unequivocally, irreducibly us, and it can be automatically linked to our names as well, which are irreducibly us. Um, In fact, our names become quite insufficient in the sense that there's more than one Mary Clancy in the world and there's more than one Bill Cope in the world, and in fact, the image becomes more definitive, and becomes a, a more definitive way of specifying instances than um, than, 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 uh, than than language is inadequate. And that's why we have passport photos and, and uh, facial recognition and whatever. So, um, but then uh, what we want to do is that we want to represent iconically um, people, right? We use these little images, which these. Wonderful people, um, you know. There's a whole history of modern modern modernist art and how they got to this point and whatever. And in fact, Otto Neurath was a member of the Vienna, Vienna Circle, a very famous um, philosophical group that created the idea of logical positives. And So he was into science and knowledge and all these things. This was really well thought through. So we tell that little story um, there, but the parallel is, you know, just as I've just mentioned, the we, difference between we can represent instances of concepts both in text. And an image with a form of iconography for concepts which were invented in the 1920s by these people and which are now more or less universal you walk through an airport and you don't have to be able to you have to read the science there are little icons everywhere which which walk you around now what's profoundly important about this for the digital era is in fact this is the structure of all databases this is the structure of excel files so the head of the column is a concept and in every cell is an instance Right. Um, um, and in fact, all our digital world, you know, one of the arguments we want to make about ontologies is that our digital world uses this underlying grammar as well as a way to manipulate massive amounts of data and the meanings we use every, every day. So, for example, if I come onto a Facebook page, there's my name. But the reason why it's in that field is uh, which is the instance, my name um, and me connected to that by transposition. Um, but, 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 But the end reason why Facebook works as a place is because they have a field called name, right, which is the ontology idea, right? So what our ontology idea is that not only is this instance and concept an ontology of Mary and my embodied existence as people in the world, instance and concept, but also it's the underlying engine which drives the digital world.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, great. That's, um, <laughs> that comes out so clearly. And it's one of those moments, too, where you mean, uh, where what you mean by text comes out so clearly. The digital uh, world has put in front of us text, which is unspeakable. The, the, the background code to all those things you're talking about in, in, in Facebook are um, would in the olden days be called language, but clearly they have nothing to do with speech. Right. Yes.
1: Now, let me say there are, there are again, with text, there are unambiguous translations of Mary and my names, right? So um, um, when it's written and typed up as Mary Clancy Bill Cope, it's ambiguous in potentially problematic kinds of ways. One example of an unambiguous version is our social security number. Another example is our mobile phone numbers. Another example is our email addresses because they are systems of purely textual identifiers. Numbers and email addresses and mobile phone numbers are all purely textual in our definition, which is stuff that's represented in Unicode. Um, And they are completely unambiguous. So what's interesting is that we're in this world where um, certain forms of text, uh, not our names, um, are in fact ways of definitively and unambiguously identifying us as instances of a general concept. Right.
3: And and Daniel... Um, one of something that we believe is unique about uh, these two volumes uh, and the work is that we've tried to understand how any grammar and our transpositional grammar can deal with the digital world, right? Uh, because the, the meaning-making, which is multimodal within the digital space, uh, also requires parsing in the same way that we would parse anything else and we needed a means to be able to do that.
2: Mm-hmm. Great. Um, I'm going to just step us to the next uh, function, which is agency. Um, and again, there uh, just for the listeners sake, um you give us different uh, subcategories, I might call them, or different variations on um, event, role, and conditionality, um, would there be another vignette which might pick up uh, any one of those concepts to sort of give the readers an idea of what's meant then by agency?
1: Okay. Um, so I'm just now having a quick look through some of our little stories that we have in in that um, it, um, in that area um, one of the concepts we have um, is role okay so the way we specify role in speech is first person second person third person you know um, I you they um, what we've done is we've translated that as um, self uh, other and and things um, so what we can do is again you um, these things can be represented um, in in different different forms. Now, let me give you a little multimodal example of, of self, other, and thing. Um, um, uh, and by the way, let me focus on one aspect of this for a second. One thing is that the I and the you and the them are actually incredibly fluid. It's our transposability argument. So, within each one of these ideas, like role, you know, we might think it's definitive: first person, second person third person, whatever. But in fact, when you, when I'm speaking to you, um, I, I've got to try and this is a, a tongue twister, which I'm going to get wrong. When I'm speaking to you, my I is your you, right? So what we're doing is we're constantly doing mental swap overs along the way um, about self and other. Um, And we do it, as a matter of course, in oral conversation and even the basic learning of another language involves, you know, when you say I, it means you. (laughs) And when you say you, it means I, right? So we're we're doing these kind of swap-overs because, in fact, the one person can be you and can be an I, and we can swap them over um, uh, that easily along the way. Now, I just want to jump briefly to edith stein um, um, um and, and and in fact we mentioned edith stein in a later section of the book that deals with uh, with interest but she has this wonderful idea of empathy so when you're when you feel fear because the other person's feeling fear when you um feel incredibly moved by something that's happened to the other person you are not the other person, but in a way you are partly the other person. You're partly reliving that other person's experience in a visceral, embodied kind of way. You might be crying for and with them, uh, for example. Um, um, so uh, again, you know, there, that's an example of transposition self to other in speech, where we're doing these swap-overs all the time because you know the roles are changing as we walk as we walk through a conversation. But also this may be an embodied. Experience, you know, it may be something where you actually literally feel for
2: the other, and that's rather uh, damning evidence for um, any of the scientific literature that we read, where the passive and the nominalizations dominate, as if nobody was doing this <laughs> right, right. exactly oh, that's exactly right it's exactly all right. all right very good um uh, then uh, just to step right along our middle uh function um there if uh, we could also have a brief um, vignette to illustrate what it is that uh any of those uh, in, in this particular case the material and the ideal structure comes out yeah. Quite right. clearly, as being one of the main points, also that that, yes. that runs through the entire t- uh, grammar itself.
1: Yeah. Yes, now it, it is a a, um, a very very important idea. Uh, I'm just casting my eye through some of the things that we talk about there. Here we're mostly talking about um, a series of, um, of 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 philosophical points, and let me just say, um, give you a kind of an overview of, of the idea. So th- th- it, what we do is we talk about Descartes, Cogito, we talk, in a, um, about both Chomsky and Skinner. So the way in which um, behaviourism was demolished by, by Skinner um, is around, um, you know, the, the, these, the way in which structures of meaning happen. So what uh, Chomsky says in Syntactic Structures is the ideal structures of mean, meaning are hard written into the brain and formed by language, right? And by the way, that means that no matter what language you speak, um, that language is uh, arbitrary in relation to the brain. It doesn't matter what language it is. The structures that form that language are identical, which are these ideal structures, structures of meaning formed by language, okay? Um, what Skinner did is Skinner said, Skinner wrote this big book. I mean, his big ambition in life was to write a book about language. He wrote a book simply called Language. But by the time, um, well, when as soon as it came out, Chomsky wrote an article which, Definitively demolished it and demolished behaviorism along the way. But what Skinner did, it's a rather strange book in a lot of ways, um, is Skinner said, We are just determined by our environment. It's the B.F. Skinner box. An acute story about Skinner actually is he put his baby in a box because he thought literally in a box, the same way that he put um, pigeons and rats in boxes for the purpose of behaviorism. Because it's purely, you know, these confined environments are what create people, uh, not anything in their brains. It's, it's behaviour and conditions that do that. So what we kind of do is we play through those ideas about, um, you know, um, Skinner saying it's the material world that creates you. Uh, Chomsky saying it's this ideal world that, that, that creates you. Oh, and by the way, vis-a-vis Skinner, some Japanese students actually at the end of his life gave him a box to work in and he then would sleep and work in a box. Um, so it's a cute kind of story about someone who was, you know, about these um, material forms of confinement, if you like, as a way of, um, uh, that's what the meaning is. The meaning is the form of con- um, context, contextual confinement that you've got, and it's purely contextual. It's not written into the brain or anything like that. So what we do is we play this, these ideas through and we end up being not unsympathetic to Skinner, Um, Skinner is a very problematic person. He does, everything he does is strange. (laughs) Um, And the strangeness is the the, the interesting part about it. Um, So we end up playing that that through. So what we say eventually is this, and this becomes a kind of, so what are the structures of meaning? Well, Chomsky says they are hard, language dominates, they're hardwired into the brain and so on. Um, What we're saying is that, in fact, this outside world um, uh, has more meaning than we can make of it hence science, hence discovery, personal discovery, human discovery or whatever, Um, but also the ideal structures are ones where we can make, we can imagine more into the world than is there in order to expand, you know, in other words, we're not completely confined to what Skinner put in his box. So we say, look, in fact, what we've got in something that we call ontology, these structures of meaning, grammar, buildings, uh, images, whatever, we have these structures of meaning, um, where we're confined by materiality, but nevertheless we can imagine beyond the material world as well. So we say that you know, yes, the material and the ideal are fundamentally related, but in fact they each exceed that relationship.
2: Yes, and that comes out very, very clearly. And and, and it's wonderful the way you rehabilitate uh, Skinner, who as <laughs> as as you recognise is a. a, a Problematic figure in, 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 in psychology and in, in past thought. Um, but uh, this, this idea of this excess in material and in the ideal. And if, um, I think, as you state one point in one of the books, you tend toward the material base, you have every bit of respect and every bit of openness toward the ideal side as well. And it's that, uh, and, as you say, and, transposition very often, which.
1: which and matters. look, you know, one of the things is that Descartes is the poster child of the ideal. And Locke is the poster child of the material in the Western world. And by the way, we do an Indian equivalent to this in Indian philosophy. There's the same debate going on around the material and the ideal in which the ideal wins in India around um, the Vedic tradition. But so this is not just a European story. This is a general story. Um, but what we say is that even though Descartes is the poster child of idealism and Locke is the poster child of materialism. You look closely at both of them, and they're smart enough to know that it's actually more complicated than that. It's actually a bit of both, and both are important. Um, So one of our arguments is to go back even to those fundamental philosophical propositions um, and say that we need to be a little bit more (laughs) open-minded, generous,
2: whatever you might want to call it. Yeah, and that brings back this idea that you were talking about of don't do critique, do design. Um, I yeah. remember so many times while I was a student and also while I've been teaching where you get into some somebody's complex theory, let's say Locke, as you just mentioned, um, and you find people reducing it somehow because yeah. they, well, let's use your terminology, perhaps have an interest. <laughs> and, yeah, sure. if, if, yeah. and if you're able to step back for a moment, you realize, but... And there's just mm-hmm. a dot, 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 because there's, there's, there's more there to lock, obviously, yeah. Than, than, yeah. than the way he's come down to us. Um, just to move into mm-hmm. the uh, last two uh, functions, which um, bring us to the second book, Adding Sense, um, there is there in participation um, three concepts which uh, I found fascinating i have been thinking about ever since, um, representation, communication, wow. and interpretation. Yeah. Um, if I may briefly, as far as I understood representation, it's how meaning is made um, by the individual to him or herself. And it's through, of course, any of the forms that that individual may have to hand or may be uh, adept at. And uh, this isn't something that necessarily gets out into the world. It's typically something that revolves closely to that particular individual. And it may be an animal as well, maybe a dog who's alone at home, but uh, let's imagine the human for right now. And on the far end, interpretation is whatever artifact might have been left over after that individual then tries to go to get whatever meaning they found out into the world. And that yeah. is an interpretation what another person will make sense of a re-representation, as I think you say also exactly. at one point, which yeah. which which, which yeah. leaves in the middle, and again, please correct anything that I may be misrepresenting, which leaves in the middle communication, which was a bit of a... hmm how shall I put it, a a, a problematic act for me. I I had trouble grasping entirely then in those two ends, representation, interpretation, what was happening in communication itself. But again, please correct me if I've misrepresented something there.
1: Ed? In a way, um, what we're trying to do is write a huge bias or right or wrong in the sense there's a huge bias towards communication. So in other words, in, in what... You need to correct... Yeah, to correct. Yes, correct is that the right word. Yeah. Um, so um, you know, in literacy, for example, um, the you know the main effort is around communicating a message. And in fact, um, um, and, and in education, one of our great biases, which is communication uh, by, um, emphasis, um, is something like uh, the role of the teacher as somebody who tells the lecture. So the rule of Saint Benedict was, you know, it becometh uh the master to speak and the disciple to sit time and listen. Well this this is a very nice description of a lecture. <laughs> um it's also a nice description discursively of a textbook where you sit and read someone, something that somebody's given you. Um, and this is even up to today, if we uh, we give the Daphne Kohler example of MOOCs, um, which are just video lectures. So we have this big emphasis on um communication. But if I go back to the step before that, and these are not sequential steps, they're kind of just a kind of a little logical progression. Um, representation is making meaning to yourself. And one of the incredible insights of Vygotsky is that the, the more you learn to speak and to represent yourself in external speech, the more different inner speech it becomes. So when you're talking to yourself, you're seeing images, there are no subjects and predicates, you maybe just there's the odd word, Um, unless you're rehearsing something you're about to say. So representation is um, uh, really meaning to oneself, right, which is I'm walking through a shopping mall and I'm making meaning by my wayfinding habits, my navigation paths. Um, I'm reading, um, uh, um, no, I'm representing stuff in the sense that I'm I'm writing something down, it's a note to myself, Um, it's a diary, it's something which is only meant for me to remember later. So we can do all these things which are simply for our own uh, uh, integral material practices which are part of thinking, right? And that doesn't involve any necessary communication at all. Now, if we decide to communicate, it's directed to another person or it might be a trace of representation that the other person accidentally comes across. You know, a diary is the classic example where it was never meant for anyone else to see, but or was it, <laughs> but, but someone else sees it um or somebody notices me in a particular bodily demeanor which is i'm looking down for example now i didn't mean anyone to notice that i was feeling down but someone saw that um interpretation then is never the same as so, so never the same as communication which is you know again the and bath stuff that did to the author and whatever you know the that the, the meaning that's communicated is never quite the meaning that's interpreted yes there's a trace yes there's a connection well as if no meaning is made so what we do is these three things are there's always a change that goes on what you communicate is never quite what you mean even though there's a lineage there the interpretation is never quite what what was communicated and the word that we give to describe all three of those is actually a very nice, concept of John Dewey's actually which is participation um, and John Dewey has this lovely quote where he says um, compared to the mysteries of transubstantiation in other words the, the body and blood of Christ becoming um, or no the bread and wine becoming the body and blood of Christ in, in the Catholic Eucharist um, uh, compared to Uh, transubstantiation participation is a greater mystery right so it's this mystery of meaning where these things happen but again our point about fluidity is that it's not representation straightforwardly becomes communication and then gets interpreted the meaning gets passed on always there's a transposition there's a lineage there's something similar but there's also
2: important differences and we need to track what those differences are and why they're there If I might comment on that, that is one of the strengths of the grammar. The fact that you have then a vocabulary a set of a terminology that you develop. And when you revisit these thinkers, um, you will often let them speak for themselves, give them their own space. But then at some point, you'll often then tie it up with, and in our terms, and then you get to see how that carries on but from a slightly different perspective. And, and it's the consistency, and also th- these terms being well-chosen, um, participation, for example, but it's the consistency of the usage that brings home the uh, entire idea of the grammar, the entire framework.
1: Yeah, and look, by the way, participation, we say John Dewey chose it for us because this was such a, <laughs> uh, a dazzling idea. So in a way, what we're trying to do is, you know, the, the stories is to acknowledge um what we're if you like riffing off you know to use the musical term you know these are riffs if you
2: like um but you've got to you've got to acknowledge what the source of the riff is so yeah that's that's okay Uh, and that brings us then finally to interest uh, which is the last function and again there um uh, one of the ideas that really caught my attention um was uh, program. As you call it, um, assimilation, uh, differentiation, and uh, w- what I read there was um, really a-, a penetrating description of where Western societies are socially, um, and increasingly other societies, not just Western. Um, if you if you take uh, social media, Creative Commons, multiculturalism, cosmopolitanism, as as, as you lay out um, in that section of the grammar um but then flip to the other side and say ah but the commercial interests here are only of the few we've got the unpaid and the underpaid the users and the creators are not necessarily users and creators in in the in the purest sense of those words um and also Very typical of transposition, the persistence of an assimilating program. I'm going to assume people understand the differences there between assimilation and differentiation, Um, reimposing itself. Uh, And then you come to this, I'm just going to read uh, two or three sentences, a quote, which, which really brought home, I felt, what is happening also right now as we speak. And I quote, this then is the shape of programs that differentiate interests in the era of digital media. The social effect of such programs is to fracture, fragment, factionalize. It means that differentiating programs have become powerfully effective forms of politics. Instead of mass, we have a million communication bubbles whose members can be ruled by division. That, I found, really um, showed again the applicability of what it is that you're doing.
3: Can I say, um, and Bill's doing this part, but can I say that Uh, This is one of the most important points, I made this earlier, about our purpose is really understanding the power of meaning to uh, create uh, a more inclusive sociality or a more divisive sociality and that we really need to understand the dynamics that occur uh, in in the kind of ways that we've described here.
1: So... um, to give an uh, example of this now, um, this is where we come back to Chomsky, and one of the right. things is linguists either don't get what the connection is between um, Chomsky's politics and his ling- in linguistics, or they're just so different. And Chomsky himself says, okay, they're just two different worlds, they don't connect, right? You know, um, And, in fact, if you go to um, the Wikipedia pages which have Chomsky's publications on them, there's just two separate pages, one for linguistics. I mean, Chomsky is without doubt the most published and the most cited modern um, intellectual. But they're just two separate pages, the politics pages and the uh, the linguistics pages. But if you go and you do, and what, in fact what he even says is that um, social science is not science. You know, the only real sciences are these um things like linguistics which have these rigorous scientific processes and you know so he's very dismissive of any form of social science but in fact if you read the chomsky work on media as social science he describes theories of interests around what we would call the assimilationist model which was true of a certain period by the way which is a few big media corporations peddling their editorial line right in a way which is very, very clear. So the assimilations program sits with modern nationalism, which is the strong nation-state, which is partly militarised because we've got to uh, mobilise people to go to war in in the name of the nation if we need to. Um, 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 And and so so Chomsky's media theory is kind of worth worth looking at, to be quite frank. Um, Then what we argue is that with the rise of social media, we have something which is very, very different. There is no editorial line, you can see where the social media companies these days are even struggling with crazy, incorrect, hysteria, you know, I mean, anything goes and on the fringes of that, that they really struggle at, at the level of, you know, lies and inflammatory stuff and whatever, because basically they don't have a, an editorial line and basically there are these, you know, as we said, a thousand information bubbles or ideological bubbles if you like. And one of the things we do is we talk about the lineage of the linguistics behind that, um, which begins actually with the complete failure of Chomsky's uh, linguistics as the basis for machine translation in the early 1950s. So Chomsky becomes political um, in an overt kind of way after a period of time when he'd had substantial military funding to make machine translation work. It didn't work. The paradigm they were using was never going to work and it didn't work for reasons we partly allude to. And therefore, the linguistics becomes arcane in Chomsky and the politics becomes quite separate and visible and disconnected from it. Um, What's interesting is that the new paradigm in linguistics, which is called statistical machine translation, was invented by a student here at the University of Illinois by the name of Robert Mercer. Um, um, which is okay, there is no, and by the way, the great quote from Robert Mercer was when he got his lifetime achievement award from um, the Computational Linguistics Association, um, he told this story about his boss who said, Every time we fire a linguist, uh,
2: the system gets better. I had and to laugh patient- out loud at that one. I'm sorry, that
1: was. Yeah, yeah. And so what happened was, you know, and so all they do now and all Google Translate does, it just simply has. You know, statistical analyses of text, which is meaningless, but happens to, to, you know, and and the power of Google's machine translation, which was based in these insights of Robert Mercer's, um, was um, the fact that we, um, uh, that meaning, you can't find any meaning, you just find these repetitions of words and you do statistical analyses, and the power of Google is the fact that they've copied everybody's stuff without their permission. And they've copied a whole lot of human translated bilingual texts, essentially. Um, and they've got people correcting stuff now in the sense that you if there's a problem, you correct it and you know, they're, they're trolling through and getting better and better because their corpus gets bigger all the time. Now, Robert, what Robert Mercer did is Robert Mercer applied his insights to become fabulously rich with a, a trading company, a derivatives trading company in, in New York. Um, Uh, but then is an extremely right-wing operator. And really, it was his genius, linguistic genius, uh, that won the election for Trump. Trump was a pretty unlikely candidate in a whole lot of ways. And um, before that, he was supporting Ted Cruz, who was even more unlikely as a candidate. Um, So what they did is, um, by analysing uh, everybody's Facebook feeds, and it wasn't just Cambridge Analytica. Yes, he bought into Cambridge Analytica, Um, But it was, you know, it's really fundamentally what Facebook does. Um, You can target stuff to people based on their very, very finely differentiated differences. Um, And this is essentially underneath a linguistic technology. So where Chomsky thought the the language of the propagandising mass media was the problem, which it might have been partly back then, um, um, uh, now it's the opposite. It's the logic of um, this differentiation process where you can target stuff and create all kinds of um, psychological effects. So yeah, that's, that's the story we tell there about these
2: programs of interest, these two competing modern programs of interest. And it's one of the achievements of your grammar that it, it puts things that people may have fragmentarily known here, there and everywhere into a framework that makes them sense. When it's under program and it's between assimilation and differentiation and you draw the line with Chomsky and Mercer, um in and in surprising ways also as you say i mean machine translation was partly part of the story um it all is understandable then which is what meaning's supposed to be right <laughs> <laughs> And by the, way,
1: by the way, this was a journey of us figuring it out for ourselves, by very the way. Very reassuring. So yeah. one of the things is that, you know, um, we, we had, had a, a lot of arguments along the way. Uh, yeah, we had an instinct. <laughs> look, if we go and look at this stuff, it might be interesting. And it turns out to be interesting in a different right. way than what we expected. Yes. Or so, the same way, whatever it is. But for us, it, you know, this project took us about four years. It was just a very, it was a fun project, looking up a whole lot of things we would always meant to look up and then writing stories about them.
2: Well, the fun you had comes out on the page. And uh, Bill and Mary, I'd, I'd like to thank you very much. You've been extremely generous with your time. Um, I'd like to top off our uh, conversation here with uh, a question to what it is that you're working on now.
3: Oh, well, there's uh, we, never, we never stop. Uh, one side is uh, a writing, a picking up again of a project we left behind many years ago, which is an Australian history Um but not just about Australia, it's about how, again, how meaning is made around nation, the thing that we call nation building, right, and uh, what are the commonalities uh, and differences across the world in those processes. So that's a project that we've picked up again. In our uh, university uh, work, we are really moving forward with our argument about the affordances of the multimodal for teaching and learning and the affordances of the digital and how we can create uh, um, spaces of engagement which are more human and not less human <laughs> uh, through uh, the digital engagement and whether it's in, you know, personalised health or whether it's uh, teaching in a classroom. So we have invented um, a platform called uh, Scholar. Um, Common Ground Scholar, which we are testing and researching and we teach our graduate students through it and they know they're part of a research agenda and we keep trying to uh, break the nexus between uh, assessment and pedagogy. So we've created analytical tools in the same way as Bill was describing earlier that can track performance and that provide just-in-time feedback to learners because you can use these same tools for positive uh, reasons. Uh, And uh, we're testing the degree to which uh, uh, we can uh, uh, create uh, meaningful, uh, collaborative knowledge, you know, the social mind via the affordances of new technology and multimodality. So that's sort of two ends of the
1: spectrum of what we're working on. <laughs> yes, and just to just to kind of elaborate on that a little bit, Mary and I originally trained as historians, so you, you were able to tell that the, the two books, um, Adding Sense and Making Sense, uh, are historical narratives. They're, they're hi- histories of philosophy, histories of media, um, everything we need to we need to go back and find out. Well, how did that come? Where did that come from? Where did machine right. translation come from? Where did emojis come from? You know, where did um, the way computer code works come from? And we need to go back to the 19th century to find that out. So um, this book, it, it, to the extent that it's a series of stories, they're actually nearly all historical narratives, sometimes life life histories. So one of our original projects was. Um, in Australia, where we were originally trained as Australian historians. And actually, the Australia part comes out in these books around the work that we mention in three or four places uh, around Aboriginal Australia. So we're deeply invested in, um, in what happened in Australia in, in the, on the basis of its, its history. And this is just an old project um, that we've promised ourselves we need to finish. But the other project that Mary mentioned, uh, one way to conceive of that project is to think about. Uh, artificial intelligence and and the question of the computability of human meaning so we, we touch on this in in these two books um, but we need to think about it more systematically um, so our argument is roughly that the limits of the computability of meaning are the limits of its calculability which is actually the transposition we re instance and concept right. I was talking about before um, so what are the limits of that process um and you know and also what are the potentials because obviously what artificial intelligence does is just incredible and we've nearly barely scratched beneath the surface um but nevertheless there are absolute limits where you know the, the science fiction thing is you know the robots are taking over what's west or something you know <laughs> where they're indistinguishable no that's never going to happen because these two things artificial intelligence which is just a human invention is so different from human intelligence itself so we want to do that we have as mary said we have a very practical side of this we've been lucky uh, in the us to get a number of research grants to develop artificial intelligence tools try them out in classrooms um, and um, see what their limits are in a hands-on type, type of way. So if you like there are our two projects, um, one's looking forward and one's trying to tidy up some <laughs> bits of our life that we we feel like we need to we need to, things we need to have as Australians we need to say. <laughs>
2: All right. Well, it's, it's a good thing you're going to say it. And uh, in the area of education, it's a good thing you're behind these things, because um, with the theoretical backing that you bring to it and the wealth of experience, um, I can only see the projects flourishing. Yes. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, to the listeners, that is Bill Cope and Mary Callanzi's, and again, their companion volumes, Making Sense and Adding Sense, are out this year with Cambridge University Press. You can visit already meaningpatterns.net um, and see what it is uh, that the books are about even more. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Bill and Mary. Goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye and thanks thank very
3: you much. for your interest, yeah. Daniel, and your careful reading, yeah. which was evidence Uh, By the questions you asked.
1: We're impressed, by the way, that you read all. You you must have read all 700 pages. You know what it is, illiteracy? Um,
2: It's a comprehension test. So you've just passed the comprehension test. Well, that speaks well for the podcast in the future if people think that I'm actually reading their books. (laughs) Very good.
3: Thank you. Good luck.
2: Goodbye to all the listeners. Bye bye from me. And till next time.
3: Yes. Bye bye.
2: Bye.